We're going to dive right into the Word this morning, and uh, the title of my message this morning is One Love, One Heart, One Fight, and this is the second part of a message that I started last week. We're going to continue on with the theme of unity and humility, and all of us being like-minded and unified as a church and in all the purposes that God has in store for our lives individually and corporately. So this will be a continuation of last week's message, and I would encourage you to go online to our podcast, which is Rock City Church, or to the SoundCloud app, which also is Rock City Church, and you can hear all the messages. It goes all the way back to Dan Moeller a year ago. If you haven't heard Dan Moeller, I'd encourage you to listen to some of those messages or go on to YouTube because he's awesome. And he's a real spiritual father, he's full of fire, and he preaches the gospel exactly the way that I would want it to be preached here in our church. And so, of course, he'll be here in a few weeks, which we're real excited about. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last week. I didn't get to finish it, but actually the Lord began to unfold some additional understandings as I was reading more of the word. And this word this morning is going to be coming from Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, just hold your finger there for a moment, and I'm going to kind of set the stage for the purpose of this message. I believe that the Lord has me talking about unity and humility and being like-minded and striving together or wrestling and fighting together, not against each other, but together as a family for a reason. And, you know, I've thought to myself many, many times that our country is so divided that it's never been more divided. I've thought that for years. So I'm not shocked or surprised by the things that I'm seeing on the political landscape and the division that's happening in our country. What I'm most concerned about is not so much that as I am the church, because I believe that the church is to, select, is to set the political landscape and to raise the bar culturally of the way that God wants things to be in our society. I believe that ultimately I and you and us together are the standard bearers, not Washington, D.C., the White House, or our president or anybody else. Now, I believe we're supposed to honor and love and pray for those that are in authority over us, no matter where they are, from our boss at our job and our employers to the local authorities, even the regulations and the laws set forth by city council, police officers, we're supposed to have a heart of love and submission towards them even when they do things that aren't godly. I can show that to you in Scripture. That even if their intent is evil, at the end of the day, it will work out for our good because by honoring them, we're ultimately honoring God. It'll, it baffles your mind that I would have to pay taxes that could be used for abortions. So literally, my public-funded money and yours is used for all kinds of things that you may not necessarily agree with or adhere to biblically, but yet the Lord still says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We still pay taxes. We don't isolate ourselves and go move off to Washington State or the mountains of Colorado and build a fortress and hide out. And if we find ourselves not adhering to the laws of the land, we can find ourselves in a lot more trouble and a lot more hardship. So God has this understanding that if we'll stay submitted and even be like a lamb led to the slaughter like Jesus was, if we'll follow Jesus' pattern, it'll work out for our good. That through prayer, through love, through preferring others, through laying down our lives, we actually advance God's agenda. And it doesn't mean that we don't politically vote right. It doesn't mean that we don't even raise our voice for the things that we know are injustices. I don't sit idly by and not raise my voice it's just a matter of how I raise my voice. Am I doing it in a striving, fighting, hateful, spiteful way? Or am I doing it in a way that actually promotes the heart of the Father through love? There's a way to, to do it and even show tough love. Like, for example, I'm incredibly, incredibly passionate about, about uh, putting an end to pornography. I hate pornography with a passion. But, but anybody that's struggling with pornography, I love deeply. I love so much that people that are struggling with pornography, because chances are highly likely that in this room right now, there are a lot of people that are. I know the statistics, men and women. I, I know because I follow the movement of stopping it. 
And I want to work hard to put an end to the demand because that would, in my hopes, put some dent in the supply chain. Though I already have realized and understand that wickedness and darkness will prevail all the way till Jesus comes back, but I still have a job to do to put an end to injustice. So, of course, I think about all the women marching on D.C. and all the protesting that's taken place, and I think to myself, imagine if all those women would fight to put an end to the injustice of human trafficking and pornography. I mean, I'm not being angry and hateful and spiteful. I'm sure there are women with very good intentions in Washington, D.C. protesting, or all over the country, even here in our city. My point is, is that there are greater causes and greater purposes for us to tackle. And my, uh, my agenda needs to be Jesus' agenda. That's what your agenda needs to be. So you need to find what his agenda is and stop being coerced and sucked into the dysfunction of the world system. You've got to. Because if you don't, you're going to find yourself missing the greater purposes that God has in store for your life. And so my job as a pastor is to try to create and build a body and a people that's equipped and trained and unified to do what Jesus did. It's just that, I mean, that could be my whole life mission right there. And to do it in a way that awakens your heart, that snaps you out of the doldrums of boring Christianity and gets you on fire and gets you out of a religious straitjacket lifestyle of being oppressed to being joyous and fired up because that's what Christians should be. You have the answer for everyone. You have the answer for every injustice. You, if you're a Christian, have been set free from the, the shackles of darkness and dysfunction. When once I was a porn-looking, drug-dealing womanizer, that everything was about me and hurting and bringing destruction everywhere I went, God rescued me, he ransomed me and set me free and now says, everything you did, I'm gonna turn as a testimony to set the other captives free. And I'm fired up about it. And you should be too. I understand the world's full of darkness and dysfunction and divisions everywhere. But the answer is for each of us to make a decision to not be divided, but rather become united. We need to be a united front. And that means I can unite with the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Presbyterians. Now, I'm not united with certain agendas. I'm not united for gay marriage. I don't believe that gay marriage is biblical, but if a married couple comes in that's gay, I'm going to love them, period. Because I have a biblical command to love and to have a like-minded lowliness of heart attitude towards everyone. I'm going to show that to you this morning. Lowliness of heart means that I think less of myself. I actually think of myself with moral littleness, and I prefer you before me. And that's hard to do. I'm going to teach you this morning. What does it mean to esteem others before yourself? And what is that challenge to all of us? It's what we're going to talk about today. So I'd encourage you to take notes. I'd encourage you to write some of this down because I've done a lot of study to the heartbeat of God when it comes to the scriptures and how he's called us to live our lives this isn't overly theological. This isn't going to be above your head. This is a challenge for all of us and how we can live better because we all have to, to love in unity. There's one love. We have to have one heart. We have to be united, and we're all fighting in this fight together. Amen? So I want to brief, briefly recap what's happening in Philippians. Paul is writing a letter to the Philippian church, which was... A, a Roman province in Greece, and it was a huge trade center, a huge trade center. It was a Roman colony. So the citizens had all the rights, the, the citizens of Philippi had all the rights of Rome. And most of the, a lot of the people, not all, but a lot of them were very wealthy. And so Paul, on a, on a second missionary journey, goes to Philippi, and he goes out to sit by a river where he heard that there were people who went to pray. And while he's sitting by the river, he meets a woman by the name of Lydia, who is a very wealthy woman. And uh, she's, a, she's a tradesman or a tradeswoman. She basically sells and deals in fine linen and purple, which is the color of royalty, which is an amazing picture of God's love for women. And I'm going to just lovingly say that 
we have got to move past this issue with women and empowering women in the church today. We have to. And what we're seeing with the riots and what we're seeing with the protests and what we're seeing with the marches, it really is a direct result of years and years and years and years of oppression towards women. Now, women have the same rights as men, but women in general have not been looked at or seen as the same as men, and especially in the church. Scriptures have been taken out of context that women can't uh, be pastors, women can't preach, women can't teach, and they don't understand that when Paul was writing to the church about women, the, the setting and the context of that day is way different than the setting and context of today. And if there's healthy governmental order in the church and it's done God's way, you empower everybody because there's neither male nor female for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, I teach on that every Mother's Day. I, I usually bring a message directly about that. And uh, there's a lot to that. I don't want to get in. Obviously, we can't get into a theological debate right now. I'd encourage you to go on and listen to the Mother's Day messages uh, that I've preached. But the, but also understand the scriptures from a historical, literary uh, content and context, okay? And so women have been oppressed. There has been racial divide. We can't turn our eyes, we can't turn a blind eye to it. And we can't say that it no longer exists. What we can do is not be racially divided and not oppress other people. And pornography is a direct oppression of women. I just want to see more people stand up for the fight to put an end to that and for women to stand up and support each other and to rescue other women that are caught up in the trap of pornography and human trafficking. But anyway, Paul's in prison. Paul has lived a very fruitful but difficult life. In Philippi, as soon as he cast a demon out of a girl that was being human trafficked, she had a spirit of python. This is all Acts 16. The, the word has been translated divination, by the way. But if you look at the exact Greek word for divination, it's the word python. It means it sucks the life right out of you. And it also means that she was being played like a ventriloquist. So a demonic spirit was controlling her life, controlling her words, and she had the ability to fortune tell. Now, prophets foretell. Now, there's some... Christian prophetic ministers out there that are fortune tellers. Let's not kid ourselves. They're out there. And what the, the enemy's purpose is, is to get you to not believe the prophets and to stop believing in prophetic ministry and believe that people can actually hear the voice of the Lord and prophesy today and especially believe that all of you can do it. Because God wants all y'all to prophesy. He wants all of us to hear the voice of the Lord and speak his word. He wants all of us to be mouthpieces of God. And I've had many people over the years that ask me, how do psychics get their information? How do psychics get their information? And I explained to them, there's a demonic network, and these familiar spirits have followed family lines and are assigned to people's lives. They know all about your upbringing, the street you grew up on, your parents, your, your life situation. They work hard to try to bewitch you and fascinate you to get you to not believe God, but rather to believe in something else. It doesn't promote the gospel. There's a reason why fortune tellers actually make money. And this woman was making her, her Johns and her slave traders a lot of money. She was fortune telling, not foretelling. Psychics are like satellite receivers. They're just tuned into the wrong channel. That's the best way I can tell you. They're tuned not into the heavenly realm, and, and the purpose of promoting the gospel, but they're tuned into demonic networks and they're being possessed and oppressed and, and influenced with information about people's lives. So you're fascinated. People go to psychics and the psychic says, I see you grew up at this house and, or I see a street that looks like this or do you know a house that looks like that? And you go, oh my gosh, that was my house. Or I see that you work at a place like this. Or they bring information about your life and they use that. People are excellent at trying to discover scenarios for your life based on information. It's not that hard for me to read your face. 80% of communications, body language. And I can use body language and I can use information that I have about your life to fascinate you, but even communicate with the dead or communicate with demonic forces 
that bring me information about your life that fascinate you. And then I'll charge you 20 bucks to do it. Fortune-telling psychics. They're in our city. They're all around. I pray for them every time I drive by their, their places of business. Go to Key West, and they're about every 100 yards down Duval Street. Go to New Orleans. Every 100 yards, there's a booth with a psychic leading right to Mallory Square in Key West. And so God does something different. He gives revelation, real revelation, which is different than just information. Don't be fascinated by information. The Holy Spirit uses revelation, and you know it's of the Lord when it promotes the gospel. And so in Acts 16, right after you know, Lydia empowers the gospel, right after Lydia becomes the first convert, a woman in Philippi, Paul and Silas start preaching the gospel. And as they're traveling through the countryside, there's a woman who is a slave girl who has the spirit of divination who is following them around shouting out, these men are from the most high. They show you the way of salvation. And this happened for a couple days. And, you know, you probably got to think that, hey, you know, for a couple days, this person's saying the right things. I, man, that's all right. So Paul and Silas actually made it with this girl traveling with them for a couple days. That's why you must have discernment. It's a very important thing to have discernment. See, knowledge is between you and the Lord. Discernment is, is person to person. And one of the things that the church of Philippi would desperately need is discernment. Much of the book of Philippi is about love, knowledge, and discernment. Now, I teach you guys a lot of things today. Yes, you can love well, but you must have a good knowledge of the Lord even more, and you must have discernment. And so finally, after a couple days, Paul gets annoyed and he gets irritated and he looks to this demonically possessed girl with the spirit of Python that was being human trafficked in their midst and finally says, come out in the name of Jesus and cast the demon out of her. This is Acts 16. Supernatural. It's super, it's super normal natural is what it is. And so the spirit comes out. How did Paul know when the girl was saying actually the truth? These men show you the way of the most high or they're from the most high. They, how did Paul finally figure it out? Because anything that doesn't promote the gospel of Jesus Christ and point to the cross is demonic. It may sound right, but ultimately it was steering away the attention from the message that Paul and Silas had to her. It sounded right, it looked right, and may have even been the truth, but it was steering away the attention yep. to the true gospel. Yep. And finally, Paul recognized and cast the demon out. And you know what happened when Paul did that? The, 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 the Johns, the, 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 the human traffickers, got so angry and so upset that they stirred up a riot. They go to the leaders of the city and say, look, we're Romans, they're Jews, they're trying to convert us. To Judaism, they're teaching customs that are not ours. I'm paraphrasing Acts 16. They're teaching customs that aren't ours. And then what happens? They, they, they basically grab a hold of them, arrest them, and flog them. They scourge them, it says. The same beatings that Jesus took, the same lashings with whips, with lead and glass ripping out of their back, the very same beatings that Jesus went through, they would go through. And then they get thrown into prison. And they don't just get thrown into prison, they get thrown into lockdown. Because there's a lockdown cell in prison. It's for the hardest of the hard. It's for the worst of the worst. Because if you read it, it says that they got put into the inner cell, which means lockdown. And my point there is that Paul faced incredible persecution in launching, launching this church. And now he's writing to the church of Philippi from prison again. Paul was slandered. Paul was lied about. Not just gospel related. It all was ultimately stemming from the gospel. The reason why Paul went through such great persecution was because of his faith. And the, and the fact that he advanced the gospel. The devil doesn't mind if you're a Christian. Just be a bench warmer. Right. It's like being on the team. Good. It's like being a football player. You're on the team, but you never play. Just sit on the bench. Because as long as you're not advancing the gospel and disrupting the kingdom of darkness, pat you on the back. Be a nice little Christian unto yourself. 
And that's not what Rock City Church is about. That's not what I'm about. And that's not what God wants you to be. Because there's a great commission for all of us. And every one of us live in a community that's hurting and dying and a nation that's divided. We live in systems and places that are full of alcoholism, full of drugs, full of abuse, full of all kinds of darkness and dysfunction is everywhere around you and people are hurting and dying and we all have a mission to do something about it. Every one of us has a responsibility to make a difference and get our eyes off ourselves and our own issues to get past that, to look to the cross, to, to stay in process and not give up and back down when somebody didn't treat you right or look, you right, look at you right or love you the way you wanted to be loved because your fullness and your strength and everything of who you are is now coming from the cross and you lower yourself to love others before yourself. Show you that. And what Paul is writing from a position of saying, you are gonna have every opportunity to get offended. You're going to have every opportunity to be terrified. You're going to have every opportunity to give into the terrorist threats of ISIS, spiritual ISIS. Let's just talk about spiritual ISIS coming against your life. There's a natural ISIS. But if you look in the natural, the ultimate goal and purpose of ISIS really is to, it's a spiritual war of hatred towards Christianity. That's the first thing. 90,000 Christians were killed last year. Christianity is the number one persecuted religion now in the world. And we live in the comforts of America with a Bible on your smartphone, being able to come into a church and worship freely, and yet we find ourselves sleepy in the doldrums of boring Christianity because you're not in the fight. And when you're not in the fight, you've already been captured. Be a bench warmer, Christian. Live a nice utopia Christianity with your white picket fence and your little dog and your Starbucks, well, I'm sorry, coffee waves coffee. <laughs> now you have to understand, I love you. I'm not anti-picket fences or dogs. I'm talking, okay, maybe Starbucks. But what I'm challenging you to understand is life is much more than living unto ourselves. And if you make it about him and advancing his agenda and getting up off the bench, God says, I am going to honor you. Prosperity teaching comes from death at the cross. And then the prosperity that comes, comes in all kinds of forms. Because yeah. it, it especially is not money. Because yeah. money can be a demise. But we need money. And what we need more than anything is the ability to manage and steward yeah. what God puts in our hands well. So Paul understands that there's a spiritual picture of ISIS against Christianity in our lives and against our nation. You've got to see, Jesus made it so clear in Matthew 12. It's not in my notes, but I know it. Matthew 12, 24, Jesus said this incredible statement. You know, let me just, I love putting things into context for you in storytelling. I'm not a five-point, three-point preacher, if you want three points, five points to being a better person, I'm not it. I'm a storyteller. In Matthew 12, Jesus is casting out a demon from a guy. A guy's brought to him that had three things going on. This is Matthew 12. You read it yourself. Three things are going on. Some, they bring somebody to Jesus that was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. Not just possessed. I'm talking the guy can't see or hear, and he's possessed. So Jesus, in front of everybody, casts the demon out, and the man stands up, gets his vision and his hearing, and is completely healed. And then people say, this is surely the son of David. They're like, the Messiah.com, in our midst, it's a given. They see something happen, and they go, man, there is no doubt this is the Messiah. And then here come the Pharisees. You need to understand that anytime you're going to do something supernatural, advance the gospel, open your mouth, cast out a demon, interpret dreams, prophesy, you need to understand that anytime you're going to step out of your comfort zone, get off that bench, you're going to have every opportunity to be flogged publicly or lied about or slandered or as soon as you do, the worst enemy of them all will be the religious church leaders. I mean, I can handle the world system. Sheesh, I, I understand that. But when my 
cohort pastor across town or the religious Pharisees that don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the shiket basare praying in tongues and don't believe in casting out demons for today sees me do it, they're the ones that are going to come along. You know what they're going to say? He's doing it by Beelzebub. A rarely used term for Satan used only a handful of times in the Gospels. Because you start welcoming the presence of the supernatural. You start welcoming prophecy and the power of God. We all go, and there's a breath that comes into the room. It is time for you to get activated and get out of that chair. Stop waiting on me. I'll go do it myself. We have a city, a kingdom to advance. We have a people to empower. And it's not going to be done through logical, intellectual Good teaching. It's got to be a lightning strike from the Holy Ghost. Here come the Pharisees. He's not the son of David. This guy's not a disciple of Jesus. He is a cult leader. She's possessed by a demon. She believes in all that demon casting out stuff. You pray in tongues? That's only a gift for some people, not everyone lie of the devil. Tongues is a prayer language for everyone. And I know some of you don't pray in tongues. That's okay. Stick around. Start saying yes and saying, Lord, I want to, because it starts with the desire. I can't force it on you. I'm not going to try to make you by laying hands on you for an hour. You got to come to the, I want to stir a desire in you to start believing that you can pray the mysteries of God and be built up when you pray in tongues because that's what the Bible says. So when I'm finding myself struggling with depression and anxiety in the morning or I, all this stuff tries to come against me with the cares of this world, I go, and this thing rises up inside of me and suddenly I'm praying the mysteries of God and I went from being downcast to being edified, which is the word built up, which is 1 Corinthians 14, 2 and 4, read the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Why can't we bring back the power of God of the supernatural in a modern day age when it's become the unpopular thing in Western Americanized church? And we start moving in the power of God and demonstrating it first by love, not by how authoritative and powerful I am. Because I'll find more power when I make myself lowly in my mind and I esteem you before myself. Instead of thinking myself high and mighty and the powerful pa preacher, pastor. Yeah, that's right. Bow down and I'll show you. I'll cast that demon out just because I'm so great. It doesn't work like that. Pride must be torn down. And God has a way of tearing down anything that's of you. And if you want to walk in the more, say, yes, I want it. But allow yourself to decrease so that he can increase. Here's John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan River pre-Jesus. This guy's making converts in the River Jordan, tax collectors. It's a precursor. It's preparing the way. And he says, man, I got an awesome ministry, but behold, John 1.8, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he says, man, what I've got, I got it going on, but I must decrease so that he can increase. So you take your talents, your abilities, you take what you have, your money, your businesses, your, I don't care what you do or don't have. Whatever it is, it has to decrease. Whatever it is. I, I minister to homeless people that said, why would I ever want to get off the streets? I get three meals a day. I, get to do, I don't have to report to anybody. I don't have to pay bills. I don't have to live for the system. I don't have to pay taxes. So I've met homeless people choosing to live on the streets that are high in their mind that won't even become lowly and humble themselves and decrease. It's not a status position. And of course, I've, it goes both ways. So you can't use money. I'm telling you, anything you have must decrease so that he can increase. And so here come the Pharisees. This is Matthew 12. It says, he's casting demons out by Beelzebub. Verse 24 says, if I'm casting out Satan by Satan, this is what Jesus says, if I'm doing this by a demon, there's a problem because a kingdom or a house or a family can't stand against cannot stand if it's divided. What do you think the enemy's number one plan is going to be to stop this movement? 
He's going to get you separated. He's going to get you isolated. He's going to get you offended. He's going to get you angry. You're going to have all your issues with religion and somehow all fit into that. And if I don't do something the way it should be done or your neighbor doesn't or you didn't get loved the way you do, you get offended, isolated, remove yourself, the devil wins and he picks you off. And finally, you find yourself in a pit of struggle, despair, hurt, pain, and you're all alone. And then the devil says, see, the church never cared anyway because he knows how to kick, and then he'll even work on Christians, and then the Christians will kick you when you're down. That's why if we don't learn to get our hope and our strength and our comfort and our consolation by the Holy Spirit, the love from the Father, the comfort of Christ, if you don't learn to get those things, you're never going to walk in humility. You're never going to walk in uh, helping and supporting and loving others. So Paul's longing, he says so many incredible things, but he's longing to develop to visit the, the church in Philippi from prison. And he writes this in verse 27, Philippians 1, 27. I talked about this last week, but there's one particular word I want to bring out today. We talked about what it means to have uh, worthy conduct. The word conduct is the exact word in the Greek for politician. So God says that you, the, the word for conduct is politician. But this word means to be a citizen, to have governing rule over the civil affairs, and to make citizens. So I have governing rule over the affairs of the kingdom because I'm a son. And I can now, because I am, make you be one. I have authority to lead you to Jesus and to stamp you as a son and a daughter and to affirm you, all of you, every day of my life, but I must have conduct that is worthy because worthiness means that I received honor by how I lived my life. Worthiness means that I'm worthy to be, to have reverence and to have honor because my life demonstrated, demonstrated it. So I had conduct that was worthy. It comes from conduct, not from a title or a position. Understand that? That's why you can't chase after ministry titles. Don't even chase after ministry positions. Live a life conduct worthy of what? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Make your ambition to be the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you live according to the, the kingdom system because political, the word politician means that I'm a political representative, I'm a politician of the kingdom. Except what makes me different than normal politicians is I'm not a liar out for my own selfish gain. I'm not a hypocritical politician. But we sure know some hypocritical minister politicians around, don't we? Just turn on some Christian TV. Now, not everybody on Christian TV is, but all of us at one time might have seen or known a hypocritical Christian pol minister politician that their life is not conducting worthy of the gospel. But instead of getting sidetracked by that and getting hurt and offended and make it your ambition to tear down that Christian minister, what we do is we make it our ambition to live it right conduct worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. This is the word I wanted to bring out that I didn't get to bring up last week, the word affairs. This word affairs, the word petty means the circulatory rhythm of your life. And it also means touching or what you touch intimately. So what Paul is saying is when I come see your daily routine of your circulatory rhythm of your life and what you are intimately involved in, your work, your family, your friendships, this is the routine and the rhythm of your life. He's saying that when I come and I see it, I'm going to see a life that's worthy and conducting itself the way the kingdom should be. The affairs of our life has to be intimately involved with what? each other, because he says that you stand fast, he's writing to the church, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, and you strive together. That's where the title of this message came from. One love, one heart, one fight. Because striving together is the word for strive is wrestle, but it means we're to do it together, not against each other. And so I talked last week of how I was a state champion wrestler, and I know wrestling moves translated to the spirit. Now what I do is I teach you the moves and then I get you beside me and we start fighting together because yeah. I know we're going to work together to take Fort Aransas. Mm -hmm. God's just slowly connecting us, building a family, building a team. And at some point we're going to go out to Port A and we're going to start a work. Mm -hmm. And there's already works that are starting right now with home groups, but more will come. Mm -hmm. 
And then it's going to go all over the, to the small communities in our nation. Ryan recently said we should go and have revival services in the smallest of the smallest towns that don't have the things that we have. I said, that's a great idea. And we start sending out teams and we go to the community centers or the little theaters and we go and we take what we have and we bring it there and we ignite fires of revival in all these small towns in our commu- around our community. And so we've got to fight together as a family. 1 Timothy 6.12 says that we're to fight the good fight of faith, right? You've heard that. It's a good fight. I have to fight. It means that I war in the battle in the right way. That's what it means. Fight the good fight of faith. I'm constantly working to lay hold of eternal life to which we were called and we've confessed in a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So I'm giving a confession. We give confessions in the presence of many witnesses. So when it says to strive together, what that means is not only am I fighting the good fight alone, but I'm now fighting it with you. And so when hardship comes and adversity comes, when somebody smashes the window out of your car and steals all your stuff, my car got broken into twice in December. I've been robbed so many times. I can't tell you how much stuff I've had stolen from me over my lifespan. But I understand the scriptures of storing your treasures up in heaven where thief and rust and moth can't destroy. Of course, I do more to protect myself. Don't leave things in my car. Make sure it's locked. Get some more lights in my front yard and I even put some cameras up. Whatever it's gonna take. The point is though, is I'm not so attached to something because my treasures are in heaven. And that's what Paul's saying here. Now, take me and the way I live my life and let's partner together. And I get Kayla and Lauren and Ryan and Jeremy and Marlene, and I get you guys now doing it. And then you start partnering up with each other. And suddenly we're striving together to fight the good fight of faith. And that's what Paul is admonishing. And then in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, Philippians 1.29, he said, understand what I'm trying to say. It's been granted to not only, to granted means you've been given the gift, not only to believe, but also suffer because suffering has a purpose. Because when you make it through adversity, when you understand no matter what you're going through, if you'll trust God and put your hope in him and proclaim the gospel and be even louder with your voice of faith, it actually is gonna work on your behalf and advance the gospel. And then God will use you even more and you're gonna see supernatural results. So it's been granted to you. Don't be afraid of the terroristic threats of the enemy. Don't be afraid of the lies that are coming against your life. The spiritual demonic ISIS is gonna come against you. Trust me, he's working hard. And the best way to get you to not be in the battle or be terrorized is to be quiet. That's how the enemy works. Just be quiet. You're a Christian, cheers. Just be, live to yourself. That's not how God wants you to live. I'm challenging you guys to get out of the box. I'm challenging you guys to rise up and I'll help you. I'll do it with you. You're not alone. You got a lot of gospel warriors here in this church. You got a whole church of advancement. Rock City Church is a church of advancement, not isolated kingdom unto ourselves. So he says, it's granted. This is a gift. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean that God caused your baby to die. It doesn't mean that God caused the adversity to happen. But what it means is that in the midst of it, if you'll turn the tables on the enemy, it'll actually work out to confirm your salvation and advance the gospel. Let me just give you an example. Look at verse 30 here for a second. Pull up verse 30. This is what Paul says. He says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and here is in me. And Paul's going to go on to say, let's look at Jesus's life as an example. But he uses his life as an example. In Philippians 1.12, Paul, writing from prison, says, I want you to know that what's happening to me is actually turning out for the furtherance of the gospel. This solidifies the point that I'm making to you today. So Paul beat, lied, prison, all the, the, I mean, all the worst of the worst that even his own brethren This isn't just, man, I got a riot because I cast out a demon and turned the city upside down. I guarantee you it was his fellow comrades that he once ran with for years and years. The people, even probably religious Christian Jews were persecuting him, saying, look, look at what happened. 
But then Paul says, no, actually, let me show you, this is actually causing the furtherance of the gospel. And it was actually strengthening Christians. Look at verse 19, Philippians 1, 19 through 21. He says, I know this is gonna turn out for my deliverance. So keep praying for me and I'll keep getting my supply from the Holy Spirit. I know this will turn out for my deliverance according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing, I'm never gonna be ashamed, but rather with all boldness, Christ is gonna be magnified in my life, whether I live or whether I die. And why am I telling you this? Because here's why. Starting at the first of this year, my wife rear-ended, accidentally rear-ended somebody. We had a car accident first in the fifth day. Then we had some issues that happened with her and having her wisdom teeth taken out. And as much as I wanted to think to myself, man, we're going to coast, God said, no, you're never going to coast. I'm only telling you that because we had a brutally rough year last year. So did so many of you. Here's what I know. Hardship, adversity, difficulties, difficult situations, you're all going through it, or you will at some time. And it's the enemy's plan to get you sidetracked and defeated and silent and quiet and just focus on your issue rather than rise up, be bold, preach the gospel, say how much faith, say it, proclaim it from the rooftops, be a little louder, be a little more confident and use your adversity to actually further advance God's agenda, not hold you back. So Paul's saying, use my life as an example. And then he continues on. Philippians chapter two, verse one. If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, let's pause on that for a moment. How many ifs do you count there? There's four. If, 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 if. This is a picture of the triune love of God and how it comes out in affection and mercy. The consolation or the paraclesis is Jesus aiding, supporting, strengthening. The comfort of love is the Father's love ruling and reigning in your life, knowing what it means to be a son. Fellowship of the Spirit means, coin, the word fellowship is the word koinonia. It means I am a benefactor of everything that the Holy Spirit has to give. So it means that I'm fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit in koinonia consistently. I have the Father's love ruling and reigning, and I got Jesus right by my side strengthening me. And out of that comes affection and mercy. You can't make up affection and mercy. Affection and mercy will only be an overflow byproduct first of those three things. If, 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 if. If, 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 if. And if means that you may not. If means that if you'll make it your ambition to do it, then what'll come out of that is affection and mercy. And Paul is pleading with the church to say, come on, guys. If you have any, if you call yourself a Christian, you should be comforted by the Father's love. And if you are, and if you are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and partaking in koinonia, if you're a partaker and a benefactor from the Holy Spirit, if you have any affection and mercy, verse two, fulfill my joy. My greatest joy as a pastor it's not a bigger church. It's not more money. It's not shopping centers and bank accounts. It's not how, how many seats are full. This never phases me. In fact, for a nine o'clock service, this is amazing. I'm always thankful. As long as there's two of us together, I'm going for it full speed ahead. Because it's not about numbers and people, it's about Jesus. And in fact, he goes on to say where two or more are gathered, so all we need is two. And then he's here in our midst, Right? And so he says, fulfill my joy. Your joy also should be to be like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. And I want to break down some of these words for you. Like-minded. Think about like-minded. The only way that you're going to be like-minded with somebody is to be in relationship with them and to humble yourself to get out of isolation mode and to start being around people that are like-minded. And I'm not talking partying, drinking, pot smoking. That's, you can be like-minded with them too. This is spiritually like-minded. Now, like-minded doesn't mean uniformity. Make sure you understand that. It doesn't mean you have to look like me and act like me and everybody is submitted like robots to the pastor. Uniformity, uniform, everybody is in line wearing the same clothes. 
That's not the kingdom way. Like-minded also doesn't mean that everybody's an ear, everybody's an eye. It means that we're like-minded because we recognize and realize that it takes an entire body to accomplish the work that God has. It takes a hand, a foot, an eye, an ear. But in our diversity, if we're not like-minded, we're going to be destroyed or divided, right? So I'm not talking about uniformity. I'm talking about unity, which only comes from the Holy Spirit, which is why you must be spiritual. Any religious church that's out there that's legalistic and pharisaical is missing the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to name names. If you want to stop judging and being angry, just recognize and realize they don't, they're missing the Holy Ghost. There's no fellowship of the Spirit. Comfort of Jesus Christ. So we, they become pharisaical. They're clean, they're washed because of the word, but they got all logos and no rhema. So to be like-minded means that from a spiritual standpoint and a natural standpoint, we're unified. Same love. Oh, man. This word for love is not phileo. It's not brotherly love. It's agape love. This is the love that only comes from God. This is the God kind of love. I mean, the deep affection and intimacy. It's the love that's so genuine and authentic that is a who you are, not what you do. The phileo comes out of that place and we show brotherly love. There's a lot of people that do brotherly love, but they're missing the God agape love. And it only lasts for a season and it doesn't change lives. Just serving at a soup kitchen or serving at the mission doesn't actually change a life. You're doing something Jesus would want you to do, but at some point, those people must get converted to hear the gospel. And you're showing them. That's what's powerful about it, is it's a matter of having and showing. A lot of people just go and do it to show, but they're missing something on the inside, and a lot of times they're doing it to find comfort because I feel good about myself. The Bible actually says you're electioneering for yourself. You're trying to promote yourself by the good deeds that you do. Stop. It doesn't mean stop doing good deeds, though. It means do it from a place of compassion and love and like-mindedness and having the same love and one accord and being of one mind. This word for one accord is used only here in the entire Bible. There's nowhere else that this word is used in the whole Bible. And this is a compound word that's made up of two words. The first part, one, is the word sim. It's where we get the word symbiotic. It means together. And then the second word is where we get the word psyche or psychos. And what that means is that's the seat of your emotions, your mind, your will, your soul. And so when he says that we are to be in one accord and to be like-minded and to have one mind, the premise is, is that my opinions, my feelings, my thoughts, my interests, the idea of us being of the same public party has to take place. That's a great understanding. It means to be of the same public party. What a relevant word in this day and age. Because chances are likely we have Republicans and Democrats here at Rock City. Nueces County is a predominantly de Democratic county in Texas. That's why I don't ever make it my ambition to be political. I make it my ambition to advance the gospel. And if that means stopping any truths that are not biblical and kingdom, I'll make my voice heard like gay marriage, like rights of the unborn. That's not a political agenda. That's not a Republican thing. The point I'm trying to make is we're to be of one like-minded party in the kingdom, and you're all supposed to be kingdomly political. But you're supposed to not be hypocritical or a lying politician, which means you're not living a double standard life as a Christian, that your conduct is worthy. You see the pattern I'm trying to get into all of us today. This is so important for this time right now. One accord together in our soul, our self, our inner self. It means that I'm united together with you in my soul realm. The way that I feel, the way that I think. And now when you're hurting, I'm hurting. Now when you're struggling, I'm struggling. Not in a way that causes me to be defeated, but it now means that where you're weak, I can become strong and I can feel what you're feeling. And when I'm, and now I am, when I'm strong, bearing the burden of you when you're weak. See that? So God forbid, I don't ever want you to go through a difficult time. Some people go through difficult times through a crisis of faith and not believing. 
and not understanding. So you know what I'll do? I'll be strong where you're weak. And I'll love you, and I'll understand that you don't have to do it the way I do it, but wherever you're at, I'm going to be a supporter for you, no matter what you're going through. And so, we're to be of one accord, one mind, and like-minded. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. This word for selfish ambition in the King James is actually the word strife. But it's not like you think. Actually, the word or the understanding in the Greek is the understanding of I'm electioneering or intriguing for office. It means I'm purposefully trying to run, my, run for office or be in a position of authority. And Jesus never wants you to do that. Now, I'm not talking about the authority that comes of being a son. I'm talking about making it your ambition to be in a ministry public office. You may have heard from the Lord that you're called to be in a position or a pastor, and that's great. I did too a long time ago. But I never strived or elect to promote myself because I learned that promotion comes from the Lord. And that's what I'm trying to teach you here this morning is that selfish ambition is me electioneering for myself to promote myself in your eyes. I'm always trying to make myself better instead of serving you and loving you and lowering myself down below you. And if I decrease, I allow him to increase and then supernatural freedom comes to your life. That's the understanding is that God does not want you striving for position, but rather drawing closer to him and becoming who he's called you to be because he promotes you. It also means, selfish ambition means that you're partisan. I'm using some electoral terms, some governmental terms today for you. It means that you're partisan. And in the kingdom, there's no partisanship. There's no partisanship in the kingdom. There's gonna be diversity. There's gonna be differing mindsets. Now, if it's unbiblical, and if it's heresy, I'm going I'm to say something about it. But this is rather talking about the way that I love and the way that I live my life personally. You've got to move out of electioneering and being partisan. You've got to learn to love everyone. And then he says, or the meaning of selfish ambition means to be fractious. You know what the word fractious means? To be fractious means that you're irritable, quarrelsome, difficult to control, and unruly. And that's not the way God wants us to be. So we don't do anything with selfish ambition or conceit. The word conceit is also a very unique word. It's in the dictionary. It's the word vainglory. Just look it up. It's a fun word, vainglory. We don't use that in our everyday terminology, but the word vainglory is really a cool word. It means that you have inordinate pride in yourself or your achievement. You're puffed up. And God doesn't want anybody to be puffed up. I'm teaching this today because God wants this church to become more of a united front. We are growing fast. So many of you, I don't even know. You're, and I want to know you. I want to hug on you. I want to love on you. And I want us to be united together. That's going to be harder to do as the church grows. More and more people are, going, are coming to Rock City now. And this church is going to keep growing. And as it keeps growing, if we don't get these things down and understand as a unified front, we're going to become divided. And I don't want us to be divided. So we have to have a lowliness of mind. It means that we have a humble opinion of ourselves. It's a deep sense of your moral littleness. It means you're modest and you're humble. And you think of yourself less than. Not that I'm not a son and confident in my authority and power as a son. But when I meet you, I'm preferring you and I'm loving you. And I'm thinking myself less than, not more than. And that's the problem with religion, isn't it? Isn't, can't you smell that a mile away now? When you, when you see it done right and you understand the scriptures, and that's a turnoff, and that's why so many people have walked away from church, right? Or religion, because they felt this higher and mightier thing coming from Christians or from others, and they feel less than or inadequate. Let's not allow that to happen in people's lives. Please get the scripture. Lowliness of mind means that you esteem yourself with a deep sense of littleness and modesty and humility. And to esteem, this is a very unique word, esteem. It means that, that you are to lead and govern. That's what that word means, to lead and govern. 
It means to have authority and to let others go first. It means to consider, deem, and think. So how do I lead and govern others better than myself? Aren't I supposed to first be really great so that I can lead others better? Think about the scripture for a minute. How am I to esteem others better than myself? Well, I had to think a lot about that. I had to think a lot about that scripture. It means this. Jesus said that the last shall be first. Jesus humbled himself as a servant. Better than puts incredible challenge on me to lead myself really well. Because if I've got to lead you even better than myself, then the bar's really raised high. It doesn't mean that I neglect myself, but it means that I'm now empowering you to be led. I'm now making you a leader. I'm now doing what Jesus did by giving it away into other people's lives even better than my own self, which puts the challenge for me to really be doing it right in my personal life. It means that, no, we used, to, you know, we used to do potlucks all the time. Now, I love shaking hands and hugging people and moving around. And many times, my leaders would say, Pastor, you come and go first. Or if I had kids and whatever, I would go ahead and go first. But not because I had the position of authority. Many times, I didn't care if I went. In fact, there were many times where I didn't even get to eat or I got the last of whatever was left. I can tell you how many times that happens. And no, I don't have to have a special seat at the table. And no, there doesn't have to be a special pastor's table. Now, sometimes we do that, not because of we're higher and mightier. We do it because of what's taking place and when they're going to speak and, uh, you know, uh, who they are. You know, other people may not understand what I'm saying. So if a mayor comes or a real great person in position of influence, we may make a special place for them. But for me as a pastor, I don't have to have the front of the line or the best seat at the table. In fact, I would probably prefer to go sit at the worst seat and be the last in the line. That's what it means to lead to esteem others better than yourself. Stop promoting yourself and trying to electioneer for yourself and get a, a place of position. Promotion comes from the Lord. Do what Jesus calls you to do. Love really well and do all these things. Love each other really well and become a united front to tear down the lies of the enemy. And then finally he says this. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is Philippians 2.5. So now he switches. He says, use me as an example, get unified, love well, be of one heart, one mind, one spirit. And then he finally says this, use Jesus as your example. Let this mind be in you. It means the way you think and act and judge. This is the mind that must be inside of you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I said, Lord, what does that mean, didn't consider it robbery? He didn't consider not robbery because you have all the benefits that come from being a son. Yeah. It means that all the benefits that come from Jesus or come from the Father, you get because you're a son. So it's not robbery. It's not robbery, but it's also important to know that he was in the form of God. Everybody say the form of God. The form is the word morph, and it means the one who strikes the vision, or it means the picture or example or outward appearance of. So Jesus would be in the appearance of God. He had the form of God and he would strike the vision for the kingdom to advance. He was the chosen one. So he was first in the form. So in order to be equal and not consider it robbery, you must be born again and be in the form of God or it's robbery. And there are a lot of people robbing God today, aren't there? Let's not be God robbers. Yeah. It's not robbery when you're in the form of God. And it's not robbery when you humble yourself to be equal with God, the word equal means quantity, quality and quantity and likeness. It doesn't mean that I am God, though. That's what that word is. It, equal doesn't mean that you're God. It means I have the likeness, the quantity, and the quality of the Father demonstrated in my life. So Jesus himself didn't consider it robbery because he was the son, because he get, gets all the benefits as a son, and he was in the likeness of God, but he also made himself of no reputation and he took on the form. You got two forms of a bondservant. So there was a form of God, meaning that I had the quantity and the quality and the likeness, but I also took on the form of a slave. So Jesus would fully be a bondservant, but also fully be God. He was God and man at the same time. Now God has that for you. It's not robbery, robbery for you and it's not pride and arrogance 
if you're humbling yourself as a slave and not electioneering for a position or thinking yourself better than. When I see you, I know so many of you, you're so kind and you're so nice to me and I really love and appreciate the respect. What you're doing is you're giving me honor that was worthy. You're helping me. You are affirming me by coming here and giving and doing what you do to make me worthy. But it only came through conduct and through love and me humbling myself. I appreciate that. But understand, we must humble ourselves to be slaves and servants and bond servants. That's what we have to do. And that's what Jesus did. We become in the form and then we're allowed to strike the vision. We have to be a bond servant. And it goes on to say, that God highly exalted the son to where every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Why? So if you want promotion and exaltation in your life, and some of you are like, I'm not even pushing for promotion and exaltation. But you should want to exalt the gospel and promote the gospel. If you want those things, we have to have unity, lowliness of mind, one heart, one mind, one spirit. And then we prefer others before ourselves. We esteem others before ourselves. Let's all stand. You have been listening to a message from David Bendett, senior pastor of Rock City Church in beautiful Corpus Christi, Texas. David's prayer is for a deeper understanding of God's love and purpose for your life and that all of us would grow into a greater awareness of our identity in Christ. Thank you for listening. Until next time, and stay fired up.